Welcome to this episode of the Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm here today with Nick Wilson, instructor for our company, runs the Resiliency Project. Check him out on Instagram as well. Nick has got quite a story, and I think we're going to give him certainly a lot of time and opportunity on the floor to discuss what his mission is, who he is, what he does. And I think by the end of this, a lot of you are going to be looking for his training program. It can be found at streetcop.com. Along with our other instructors, we are trying to bring everybody in this world some top-notch training regarding police issues. And believe it or not, on the way to my office today, I called Nick and we talked about mental health and awareness. We're already talking about that with Jenna Romano, who's our in-house clinician here. And I told Nick, how could you be fixing law enforcement, even on the training side, without you know, essentially having a good discussion around mental health and well-being for police officers? So without further ado, here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Nick Wilson. Thank you very much for having me, Dennis. I'm very grateful to be here. You're uh, one of those grateful people. I am. Very. I think you got to go through some, some shit in life to be as grateful as you are, right? I think so. I think practicing an attitude of gratitude is life-changing, and it has been for me. It's cool, man. Why don't you give us a little uh, backstory who you are, and you can go into as depth or as keep it as shallow as you want, just so everybody has an understanding of who you are and what you, uh, what you do. Absolutely. So my name is Nick Wilson. I was a police officer for 13 years in California, and I started out at a community college police department, worked there for about a year, year and a half, and then I lateraled to Orange County, uh, California, in Southern California. And being a police officer was all that I ever wanted to do. I was a police explorer when I was 15 years old. I rode in a police car every single weekend when I was in high school. Um, wasn't really popular uh, then but I really loved the job and I believed in what it stood for. I believed in the notions of good and evil. Uh, I was pretty idealistic when I was younger, but I still always uh, have maintained that law enforcement is a noble profession. And so I was in it for, like I said, 13 years, all I ever wanted to do in my career was work in a special investigations unit, working narcotics, gangs, uh, stuff like that. And I was able to do that in 2010. But prior to that, when I was on patrol, I dealt with just as all police officers do throughout their careers, I dealt with a lot of critical incidents, whether it was, uh, you know, the homicides, uh, stabbing, shootings, child deaths, and just seeing what the worst of society does to one another. And I think after a, a long period of time, uh, I started to lose my way. I lost my way, I think, because of the impacts of trauma and not knowing how to navigate what I was experiencing. And so early on in my career, one of the first things that I was able to notice that was a significant change in me was my inability to sleep. Sleeping became so problematic for me that one day sometimes would turn into two days and at my worst three days without sleep. And I also had been injured in line of duty uh, after, you know, fighting with suspects and stuff like that. So I had a couple back surgeries prior to going into the special investigations unit. And that was the first time in my life that I ever took narcos or somas, pain medication and muscle relaxers to deal with the, uh, the back injuries that I had. And I ended up 
medically retiring at the end of 2017 uh, due to my back uh, injuries and injuries to my arm after a SWAT injury. Uh, but while I was on patrol, my, that's where really my trauma really started. And I think because of the stigma that exists in the law enforcement profession and how I grew up in the profession, we just never talked about these things. We never discussed uh, the things that issue, that bothered us. We never did critical incident debriefings. We didn't have peer support. Mental health was never uh, on my radar. And as a result of that, I, I stopped really recognizing myself as I started to deal with the impacts of trauma. And because of the stigma, I didn't reach out for help. And so after dealing with my sleeping issues and now taking sleeping medications and now going into the special investigations unit, it started getting a lot worse for me. I was working in white supremacy organizations during this time and when I went into the special investigations unit and I worked with amazing people. I had amazing experiences, but slowly I started to experience that term that we all have heard that that suffering in silence. I started isolating from my friends, from my family, uh, and my sleeping issues became compounded after more critical incidents. And so it was a very, very rough time for me. And for being as squared away as I thought that I was, uh, at the end of the day, uh, I'm not a, I wasn't able to get up off the couch, started experiencing the depression, the anxiety. And I started the slow process of emotionally numbing out. And this was the first time in my life that I'd ever done that. I was an athlete <clears throat> growing up. Uh, I was, you know, I finished my education. I really prepared myself for the profession, but I never prepared myself for dealing with the impacts of trauma, nor did I understand how to recognize them, cope. And so what I was taught from watching others and in, in growing up in the profession was to isolate, numb out and not talk about the things that bother me. And over, uh, it just kept getting worse. I ended up getting diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and was just, uh, given benzodiazepines for the first time. And when I started to numb out with the benzodiazepines, I started becoming, becoming chemically dependent. And it was a very embarrassing, shameful uh, experience because here I was as a narcotic detective, and now I'm addicted to benzodiazepines because of my inability to reach out and get the help that I needed. And in 2015, my life really changed. Uh, I had a son. That's all I ever wanted in my life. Uh, I, but I was sick. I was really sick when he came into the world. And I wasn't present, as, as, as present as I wish I, I was, or as I could have been. 2016, uh, after being transferred, to a uh, task force, I ended up crashing into a fence after drinking myself to sleep. Uh, I woke up, I lost my phone and I crashed into a fence and that was it. The stigma was so powerful at the time. I didn't pray to God that I didn't kill myself or thank God that I didn't die myself. I sat in that car in the front seat and I thought to myself, everyone's gonna know my secret. And uh, I met a we retired after that um, on the injuries. And he, uh, I think right after that, I went into treatment. Uh, seven days it took me to detox. 
And I stayed in there uh, 30 days uh, inpatient treatment. I was mortified. But much to my surprise, when I was in treatment, 45% of the people that I was there with were cops. And so I was like, okay, I'm not alone. Like, this is an actual, you know, thing. I thought it was special uh, because, you know, I thought I was the only one that was, had lost my way. And so it was a real eye opener for me. And at that point, it had given me permission almost to know that it was okay to not be okay. And from there, I went to a trauma retreat, which really kicked off my healing journey. That trauma retreat saved my life. When I got out, uh, my wife left with my son, got a divorce. And at that time, one of my brothers was also encouraging me to take my own life. And that was due, you know, by and large to his own issues and his own trauma. But that became a real fight for me to live. I, I, you know, now I'm, you know, in my thirties, retired from the profession. I built my, my whole life around, I, you know, identified with the badge, which is a very dangerous thing to do, which, you know, now looking back, I, I wish that I had had different coping mechanisms and understood the work-life balance. And if you had asked me, you know, a few years ago, if I would ever be d- discussing mental health or stigma or how to navigate through the complexity complexities of it all, I would have said, you know, you're fit for a straitjacket. It just was not something that I ever would talk about. Hey, let me just jump in real quick. Um, you said that you identified with the badge. What do you think maybe could have been implemented early in your career that may have prevented yourself identifying with, you know, as, as the CEO and founder of Street Cop Training or one of the instructors here, we really try to be a voice of reason with, you know, a lot of us have 20 plus years experience to a lot of the people who are coming up in this field or in the field now. And that's something that I try to explain to folks, but I'll try to make them feel offended is that identity with the badge. You think maybe if somebody would have told you that earlier on, like, Hey, you, you can have pride in this job. You can do it. You can come into work and love it, but it can't be everything in your life. You think that would have helped you a little bit, maybe on the crash? I think so. I think if that was indoctrinated in us in the academy and it was part of the culture from your from the academy to field training and it was, you know, part of the, you know, the whole career, I think it would have helped. Absolutely. I think, I mean, that's, it's the reason that I, I brought that up is because it's so prevalent and, you know, we're, we're, we're proud when, when we become a police officer, you're, you're proud of the job. You're proud of what you've been able to accomplish. And they teach us in the academy to, you know, w- when you're off duty, you know, you're never really off duty. You know, you've got to watch your surroundings, officer survival, off, you know, the will to survive, watching people's uh, behavior, their hands, what they're doing. You know, it's it, it's been part of the process. A lot of what I discuss, and I'm not a clinician, right? Uh, a lot of everything I've, I talk about comes from what I've learned throughout my healing journey and the work of Dr. John Violante, Kevin Gilmartin, uh, reading their books and understanding the program at WCPR is how I understood what this really means because it goes much deeper than, you know, just identifying with the, with a badge. The peer context of law enforcement is so important and so significant. And it's one of the things that I talk about in the class. And for the same reasons that we have to rely on our partners for survival purposes, 
we look to our partners for validation as well to see if they're experiencing the same uh, things or reactions after a critical incident. And when we don't see those same reactions that we might be feeling after a critical incident, let's say it's a child death that really bothered us, we become or sometimes feel invalidated or no longer credible. And there's a shame and embarrassment that goes along with that because of the peer context in law enforcement. An example of that peer context is, you know, when, when, when someone gets a new, let, let's say, holster or new, you know, duty belt or something like that, typically everyone else follows, right? When we get a new sight on our firearm, everyone, you know, the trend is that we all, and that's because of the peer context in law enforcement. And that's why stigma exists uh, because- I'm going to jump in real quick. Yeah. Let's talk about resolving some of that at the moment. So here's some good advice for everybody. And you could tell me what you want to add into this one, Nick Wilson. And the advice is, if you're listening to this and understand it and recognizing it at your agency, maybe there's be some thought put into what's actually happening when you're creating peer pressure, stigma, when you're not there to be your brother's keeper. I always tell people in class, I go, don't you fucking dare wear that blue line shirt unless you know what it actually means. Don't you dare put that fucking sticker on your car. Don't you dare hang that flag behind me on the wall unless you actually know what it means. Because I mean, you just went to an academy. It means something. And if you're going to go, and I use the example of like, you're going to go out and write another cop a ticket, you know, especially when, when somebody's been courteous and polite and the inf infraction is, is minor and you're going to hang your hat on, that's okay. Don't you dare put a fucking blue line shirt on because the only person who's going to be there to, help, to save your ass. I mean, think about how much you're hurting the stigma of the person who may be hurting inside. And by the way, I mean, I'll go on a tangent about tickets, but let's go back to the culture of a law enforcement agency. And I know this, I've worked in quite a few of them. And I, I see it. There's clicks. There are circles. You know, people may not realize that they are contributing to a lot of this mental health issue. And it doesn't always have to come from administration. It comes from peer-to-peer -peer pressure. What would you say is a suggestion to try to curtail some of that somebody could do right now? Not shun your partner's pain. And, you know, we, we <clears throat> there's a lot of things I think that we can do differently as a law enforcement community, as a culture in this profession. But I think that, you know, validating your partner's feelings and actually normalizing the actual conversation of what bothered us and how to deal with it. You know, in law enforcement, we say after something happens, like, hey, you're good, we're good, everyone good. And then you go back out and hit the road, right? A very, and I think the culture is changing slowly, definitely in, in, in many parts of the country, it's changing more quickly. And in other parts of the country, they're still in the stone ages. They're still way behind where they need to be. But I think we are absolutely capable of influencing our immediate sphere of, of peers by recognizing the things that bother us and not being, for lack of a better term, an asshole when we think that uh, someone shouldn't be affected by something. There have been times in my career, as I'm sure you've experienced as well, where you know something will happen and our partners will look at us like, uh, why would you be bothered by that? And I, I'm gonna jump in here again and I wanna say this. So for me, I have been putting a lot of thought into mental health lately, obviously, um, on a lot of levels and for a lot of reasons. And I come back to this 
why does somebody not empathize with somebody else, namely one police officer to another? And I try to think about, and there'd probably be a hundred different reasons and a different, but I think that maybe it comes down to the fact that what we can't do and what's hard to do for a lot of people, especially somebody for like myself, maybe earlier in my life is to empathize that not everybody functions like I function. And maybe that's a good piece of advice to give to somebody that knowing that something that doesn't bother you may bother somebody else. I am very fortunate. I have a very good brain and I was just blessed. I don't experience anxiety. I've discussed this before. I am not trying to brag. Try to explain why, or maybe talk to the person who's similar to me, that although it may not be affecting you, you've got to take into account that and think a little bit bigger that it may be count, uh, affecting somebody else. I did a video year, uh, maybe a year or two ago, and I said, everybody's so quick to jump on the bandwagon when somebody's got a fucking nice internal in the hopper, right? But how many of you have approached somebody and said, hey, are you okay? We had, we had somebody that worked in our office building. She had gotten involved in something with her ex-boyfriend. And, you know, it was a big deal. And uh, it was in the paper and she's not a bad person. And when I saw her, I said to her, are you okay? And she, and she, nobody had asked for that in a week. I'm the target of ridicule, embarrassment, the whole thing. But nobody asked, nobody had the... And then she opened up and started to talk to me. And I just said, it's important that you, t- I try to give her some advice. There's no judgment here. Um, but yeah, I, nobody, nobody had the decency to ask her if she was okay. And people do that. I mean, I've been internals where I was shunned. And then as soon as I was cleared, back in, back in friends with everyone, nobody wants to talk to the guys. And it's, it's no different than somebody who's dying from some kind of terminal disease and not asking or going to visit them. But, you know, and sometimes we're not conscious to understand of the damage we're doing by inaction. Absolutely. There are consequences of, you know, how do you, how do you evaluate? We always evaluate the risk of our actions. You know, we, we, we seldom evaluate the risk of our inactions, not doing something to, to, to highlight kind of what you're saying and what we can do. I think that there is a collection of factors. There, there are a lot of different things, both at the peer level, but also organizationally. And all of it really, in my opinion, starts at, at the leadership level being you know the founder of the resiliency project and and taking the calls that we get and having an amazing team by the way i have to i have to just say that we have an amazing team of people that that take these calls as well we hear a lot of consistencies in the calls in, in what is affecting our pops around the country and one of the things that you were discussing and saying <clears throat> uh about not having anxiety or, or, or the way your brain functions, you're highlighting a good point. And that is that for me, I don't like to compare traumas. What bothers me may not bother you. What bothers you may not bother me. And we have to remember that. Um, but, you know, by and large, you were discussing on a prior podcast, knowing a victim of a homicide, the, the female that was on. Well, not being a homicide, but we thought it was okay, going to be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The death. Right. And, and that, you know, when a law enforcement officer knows the victim, that's on a list of critical incidents that affect our 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 minds. And you know I it's funny, Nick. I'm gonna jump in here real quick. Yeah. I actually remember calling a supervisor during that time and saying, just so you know, I know this girl. And they went, Okay. I went, yeah, just like I know her my whole life. And they went, Yeah, cool. And, and I was new. I mean, dude, I was only on the job 
maybe a year. And if, right? it, if, if someone knew that, wouldn't it have been a good, being a good partner, or good leadership to say, hey, I'll go ahead and take this? How about this? I mean, if I was your supervisor and being stoic and, and knowledgeable, I'd say, I'll take it, whatever. Yeah, why not? I mean, that's good leadership. I'll right? deal with the consequences later. The administration doesn't understand anything. Um, I'll take the goddamn the, the thing. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Can I can I touch on one of the other things that you were discussing? It's you know my my opinion and and looking at you know how different agencies operate and you know hearing the stories that we hear, it is kind of unfathomable to me that we're in 2021 now. You know, and in every point in history in law enforcement, we have always advanced our capabilities in investigative tactics, equipment. We have always done and poured money into programs, tactics, training to save officers' lives, especially in response to the sophistication of organized crime units or gang members and new tactics that we're always playing catch up. But when it comes to mental health, which seems to be the, the number one killer in law enforcement or the number one reason uh, untreated trauma and mental health issues that leads to the deterioration of a family or the divorces or the substance abuse, all of these things, bad, you know, poor job performance. Why aren't we doing more as a law enforcement community to highlight this, <clears throat> this one single issue that has been kind of taboo in the elephant in the room in law enforcement. And that's why I'm so grateful to you and, you know, street cop training and all the instructors for making this a priority because it's emblematic of your foresight and the, your entire organization's view on this. And that's huge in our profession because when people like yourself or awesome people like, you know, Jeff Smith, Kenny Williams, and the others that I've met, Tom Rizzo, when they talk about mental health in a positive way and they stand behind a class like this, what it does is it gives permission to the rest of our law enforcement community that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to ask for help and it's okay to discuss these things. This class, by the way, is not something that I ever want anyone to feel like you know, you have to be screwed up to go to it, or if you go to it, somehow you're you're dealing with some untreated trauma. It's it's for everyone. It's for people that are just fresh out of the academy. It's learning about, you know, tactics and implementing certain techniques and strategies to include mindfulness, to be more proficient and be able to recover quicker after a critical incident. How can anyone go through you know, one traumatic event after the next and be unscathed or unaffected their whole life. I, I just, you know, there are things, you know, you were talking about having nightmares at one point or, you know, it, it, these things bother us, they stay with us. And it's up to us to be serious enough about our mental health to do something about it so that we have a quality life on and off duty. Why do you... I'm going to go back a little bit and go back pedal just a hair or actually a lot. Uh, two things. What were the books that you referenced earlier? Um, I always have them with me. Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement by Kevin Gilmartin. It's, this is a must read. Um, Police Suicide by Dr. John Violante. Dr. John Violante has written quite a few books. He also wrote Dying for the Job. 
Um, these books, I mean, there are, there are a lot of books, uh, but these are kind of like my three primary go-tos. I also just bought Tom Rizzo's Kapakazi. Uh, but those, <clears throat> these three books have the, the actual principles um, of not just trauma, but wellness. Because under wellness, there's different pillars of wellness. And people, you know, you wouldn't think that maybe like financial would be a component as a pillar of wellness. But when we look at the overarching mental health issue and what happens to us on the job, when we realize that high-risk behavior is a symptom of untreated trauma, sometimes for me, it wasn't uh, an issue, but others will start spending or they get into a financial mess. Financial wellness is a pillar of wellness. Uh, and there's you know others as well. But all of those pillars are in these books, and that's why there's, you know, this, these were kind of like my my go tos when I was in the trauma retreat. The other question I had for you was, tell me about if you if you want to share it. Why do you think you ended up in a divorce situation? Obviously, yeah, for the obvious reasons we know, but tell me about the rest of it. Like, yeah. And by the way, if it's if it's way too deep, if it's way too no, I'm an personal. open book. I'm an open book, and you know, I I, I had to make that decision when I decided that I'm I was going to start you know speaking publicly about what happened to me. What happened? Number one, my I thought like a cop that like that was it was always cop 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 cop. So it was almost like everything I did in my life was a threat assessment. My only metric for a spouse or, or a partner was, was the person going to be faithful? You know, were they going to be, betray me in some way? Right. Um, there was, I never, so we weren't really good partners to begin with. Mm -hmm. I just, so there was no, there was, there was Can nothing. Can I ask you a personal question on top yeah. of this? I, I thought the obvious reason why it ended up in divorce. Yeah. Um, I have some personal theories on, on relationships that if I talk about it, People, my wife is gonna be like, "You're such an asshole." Um, was there any doubt in your mind when you were getting married? And I asked that. I don't mean, I don't mean in the in the romantic sense. Did you have doubt that it that probably didn't make any sense, but you just went ahead and did did it anyway? Did I have doubt? Yeah, about your about, yeah. about having sex. Yeah. Uh, did you think the I'm person that you were marrying was? the one like you were head over heels you cherished the ground she walked on i don't yeah i uh i think i was so far gone by that point okay you know what before I mean? your marriage I, yeah she met me when i was working detectives and you know by that point i just honestly i just wanted to marry someone that i thought wasn't gonna Very hurt good. me i just wanted yeah. to have a kid i mm -hmm. never it was all about the job to me i never even you know, so she's a great mother. She's a great human being, but yeah. she wasn't the right partner. But to go to your right puzzle pieces, it wasn't a good puzzle piece. Yeah, you get what I'm saying? Right. So to go to your to answer your question at the time, what happened with me was when I started to emotionally withdraw and isolate, and I was numbing out because that's that was what I you know that's how I cope. That's that was my maladaptive coping strategy at the time. Um, I. I wasn't abusive. I just was not there. Mm -hmm. I was physically in the room. I was, I, and I was irritable. I mean, I was a total asshole. Right. And so 
it wasn't fun being married with me. And she had had, you know, she had, she got to her wits end with me. And so that's kind of how that happened. That has definitely well, changed now. And I also want to put this out there to the universe. And this applies to everybody. This is the importance, and this may save somebody. This is the importance of founding a relationship truly on love. There's actually a really good book. It's called, uh, I think it's called The Seven Hats. Or seven principles of success. Oh, okay. Seven, seven principles of a successful marriage. And the first thing they talk about is the most solid, concrete foundation is friendship. Oh, you yeah. have to really enjoy each other's company. I could tell you that I dated a girl a while back, and I'd say things like, "Hey, Fridays I go out with my friends. Saturdays I go out with uh, you. You know, or vice versa. I can't have you here with me three days a week. You know, now I'm married to my best friend, and whatever life throws at you, you know it." When you're with somebody, you're with somebody. And to be honest with you, my friends would be like, yeah, what are we doing Saturday? I'm like, whatever we're doing, she's coming with us because she's fucking the best, right? Like, I go to Vegas. We're like, you went to Vegas with your wife? I'm like, of course I did. She's the most fun person I know. Why would I not? So having a good recognition, some good life advice for people. So having good recognition, this is the person, this is your best friend, right? Like, that's where you need to start. Because when things like this occur, which inevitably life is going to throw it at you, that's the only thing that can help you through that. Is that a good sound sound foundation for love? Uh, a kid or a puppy or a fucking condo to split or a new car or three vacations is not going to piece shit back together. A hundred percent. Can I can I highlight something on yeah. this topic before I forget? Yeah. So I've totally, you know, I never thought I was going to get married again. And who, you know, with my story, I was like, who the hell is going to want it? I like where this is going. I'm excited about this. I was just like, and then I met Tori, my Victoria, my, my, uh, soon to be wife. And, uh, she, the connection there was unbelievable. And so the first time we ever actually met in person, we, we actually sat and spoke for 12 hours on a pier in long beach. And I was, I, 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 I mean, she was just, it was amazing. So there was that connection. There was that friendship. It was very romantic. And I expressed to her early on, like, Hey, look, this is my life. This is what matters to me. This is what I learned in my last marriage. She had been married before she gotten a divorce and our, our vision, our, our principles, our value system was completely aligned, which made yeah. it very easy. Right. It Dude, was, I, listen, I was I, my last relationship before my wife. I mean, I'm there. I'm like, this is good enough. Blah blah blah. <laughs> the I this will work. I'm not doing this any. You know, like I and dude, I had I had quite the run, but it just wasn't good enough. It was, and if I hadn't made that decision to re-engage in that relationship when it was offered to me on a final time, brother, you know, it wouldn't have. It would have just ended up in divorce. And by the way, like when you are married to somebody and they are going through something, are we frozen? Okay. And they are, and, and, and they are going through something, you know, you have to understand that love and appreciation for that person, complete empathy and sympathy for them is the only thing that's going to carry you through tough times. That's so it. hundred percent. And that, that was what I didn't understand then. It's funny, right? I was never one of the boys. Like I never went out. Like I've never even been a baker to Vegas. Right. I never saw. So, so it's interesting. The one thing I've learned in my journey is that the best way to heal from trauma, from, from, from the impacts of trauma or post-traumatic stress, the best way to heal is your 
community, your social structure, your tribe. It's the relationships. And interestingly enough, it's the untreated trauma and this culture that causes us to push away at times or isolate from our family, which is the one thing we need to heal, right? And so I went into this now with that in mind. And that's why, you know, she goes everywhere with, we don't, we don't have separate lives. We, we, we love everything that we do together. We can't wait to go out there and meet all of you. It's part of our journey now. Dude, I can't emphasize to, you know, people have to understand that even self-help uh, is not a bad thing. And trying to really put, I, as a mature, older person, I don't want to not that old, but, you know, uh, putting some real thought into your being, you know, and, and what you're doing for others and doing for yourself. You know, and, and, and don't be afraid to even seek out some self-help in books or audio books if you don't like to read or pod, like there are some real and everybody's apprehensive at first i don't need that blah 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 guys i'm telling you you're gonna be thankful when you're done going through this stuff i mean i've developed tremendously over the past six years of my life to where i tell people are like you know i don't know if i would have liked the old me as much as i like the new me and some people in your life won't like that shit because you're getting better and they want you to stay with them along for this shit journey, but it's your life. You don't have to join the shit journey train. And if you're privileged enough to have your perspective switch and change, even maybe in this podcast and this conversation, it is a good place to go. Don't fear it. And don't be afraid that it's going to be lonely because it's not, you're actually have a much more fulfilled life. Absolutely. Without me, I bet you, I bet you this is true. Are you now friends with your ex-wife? Yes. Yeah, I figured as much. Yeah. And right? she's the mother of, of, of my son. And, you know. You want to know how I know that? I know that you mentioned before earlier that she's a phenomenal mother. So you're not saying anything bad about her. So I'm guessing she's probably an even-keeled person. Mm -hmm. And I'm not lying to you. Dude, I'm friends with every ex-girlfriend that I had, except for one. Uh, and, and, well, we were so... We both really like the idea of each other, but we probably should have never been together at all. And, you know, there's, believe me, I can explain to you why it ended up going as long as it did, because we're both all right people. You know what I mean? We're both cool folks. We both found things we liked in each other. We liked the idea of each other, but we didn't, we weren't in love. Yeah. And, but the other, uh, you know, ex-girl, because they weren't, I didn't date people who were friggin' lunatics. I dated regular girls. It just, I had a role of like, hey, I don't think we're getting married. So let's call it like it is. Let's rip this bandaid off and move on with life. I'm not going to waste any more of your time. By the way, I only had like two, three girlfriends my whole life for short periods of time. Maybe those two or three times was four to six months tops, except for the last one prior to meet my wife. So three in my adult life, really, uh, I was pretty much a single guy and I was just rolling through like, but by, by the way, also, I wasn't behaving in a manner where I was looking for a partner to uh, have a family with in the future. I just lucked out being out doing that and came across that. And when we both recognized that we both throttled back a lot and said, all right, listen, actually I had a conversation. I said, I, I am this age. You are this age. It seems to, I'm a little bit older than my wife. I said, um, I don't think that there's any rhyme or reason to when it does happen, but let's face facts. This is what it is, you know? So I want to give people that advice because I'm sure there's a lot of people in 
struggling situations. You have to know that without that strong foundational piece, inevitably life is going to deliver some unexpected shit. And you better have some people that love you around you. And I'm talking about love you. And you know what, Nick, I didn't have, I don't have a lot of people that I can turn to besides the ones that I've implemented in my life. I don't have family that I can turn to besides maybe one or two people and know that I can go and have, um, you know, non-judgmental conversations on. They're just not, doesn't mean they don't love me. And let me ask you a personal question, if it's okay. You grew up like that. Was it like that growing up with you, with your, in your life? Yeah, I had nobody, dude. So imagine what that was like for you and how that manifested in your professional life, especially as a new rookie cop. Well, you know, fortunately enough, some things I think for some folks are a blessing in disguise. The, the person I had the most in my life was my grandmother, who to this day is the most admirable person I've ever met in my life. And I, you know, dude, I, I'm sure you guys are the same thing. Now you're in your late thirties into your forties. Um, you know, I'm saying talking for both of us as I'm rolling into the big four Oh this November. Um, I reflect back now that I've grown and matured as a person and somebody who's being thoughtful to the rest of the world of my grandmother and the example she set. This was a woman who uh, never casted judgment towards anybody, was a strong Catholic, funnier than, I'm not talking like grandma funny, I'm talking like should have been doing stand-up comedy, ripping it, uh, showed unconditional love. I had a very strong bond with her probably more than most of her grandchildren did. We were very much aligned as personalities. And I think that if I look for examples, she's the example I look to and try to strive to be more. It's just a woman who, uh, if she heard an off-topic, uh, any kind of comment that anybody made, she would really not lose her mind, but try to explain it. There are many people who don't understand that. You know, you have to, when you go through life, understand that you could have friends of different shapes, sizes, and colors, and you could never judge it. This is a woman who grew up in the, uh, in, you know, in the, in little Italy in the twenties, thirties, and forties, who's deploying so much kindness towards everybody in, uh, Uber Italian family that was probably set on reservations of what do you get out of a lower middle-class family, right? Socio socioeconomics and the personalities that come out of it. I don't think they're people's true hearts. I think just people lack perspective because nobody's ever given it to them. I was just going to say that. Absolutely, it's about perspective. And I also think that something happens to us. If we remain inquisitive and we really care about the healing journey and evolving in life, and I think this goes for everyone, I think your perspective changes over time. But especially after loss, after dealing with traumatic events and after dealing with what happens in, in this profession, Once you enter your healing journey, your perspective really changes and what matters to you changes. What matters to me today are, are, is completely different from what used to matter to me. And that that's only because I chose a path of healing that changed my perspective, which was a blessing to me because when that happened, amazing things started happening. I, I met my fiance, my relationship with my son has never been better. Uh, especially with his wife. I've reconnected with my family, minus one brother, but I believe over time I'm going to reconnect with him. There's just blessings. We have an amazing team. More people, you know, I met you guys, you know, this is- Law of attraction, right? I mean, that's that's how it goes. And I believe that. And I think that there's something too, an interconnectedness with, you know, energetically, I believe in energy and what you put out there and manifest- is important, but but coming back to what your your initial points were with relationships and this profession and what happens, 
you know, I think that that transferred trauma that we take home with us as police officers transfers to our spouses, to our families. If you have kids, energetically, the kids can feel it. And that's why it's so important to recognize when we need help, but also not wait until we need help. In a preventative way, we have to stop. I always equate the things that I'm discussing and what I teach in the class, and I don't like calling myself a teacher or instructor. I'm more of a facilitator. These classes are very intense. Uh, But I think without equivocation that so much pain in our lives can, um, can stop if we can work together with our families and we are more self-aware of what's bothering us. Most people don't realize how much hypervigilance, let's just say, affects us, not just psychologically, mentally, biologically, our whole body. Um, our bodies are go through so much trauma, the ups and downs of the job throughout a, a single shift. You, you take that day after day, week, month, year after year, we'll, we change. And everything not just changes in our life, in our minds, things change. Dr. John Violante discusses how in the academy, let's just sit, use this one example, if that's okay with you. In the academy, there's a process of when you're learning how, you know, the will to survive and officer safety, that process is so indoctrinated in us. And it gives us an illusion of invulnerability, as he discusses when we get out of the academy. You're more confident. You know how to do your job uh, much better each year that you're doing it. But when the impacts of trauma start to permeate into our lives, it changes the lens through which we see the world and our role within it. And that's a that's a and so when you identify with the job and that's your identity, this is a dangerous place for a cop to be. And then you're playing catch up, and sometimes it's too late. And these are the things that lead to suicide. But I believe firmly that these these are topics that can enhance your tactics, especially if you're on a tech, you know, SWAT team, um, doing undercover work, because of your ability to be mindful and grounded in a moment and not perceive something to be a threat that really isn't. These are, you know, so I mean, we could dive into it uh, a lot more, but that's what, you know, this class, you know, is one of these major topics of these class of, the, of, of what, you know, I'm teaching. And I think that this can be applied on and off duty. My, my whole hope is to get as many cops there as possible because I think, I used to always think being a swatter, a, a narc guy that, you know, being on the range was the most important thing. I always used to think that, you know, tactical operations, all these different trainings that I went to were so important and they are important. They're absolutely necessary. But I think what's equally important is understanding your mind in a preventative way, making sure your mental health is squared away. Because sometimes before you realize it, you're affected by these things and playing catch up, especially when you're, when you're still in the job becomes extremely hard to heal from. Yeah. So preemptive measures and steps to ensure, like, I believe that we can prepare a lot 
for that time to come so you know what what it's going to feel like mentally you know i mean you know i i try to put myself in a lot of different positions that i don't want to be in mentally to try to test where i would be and what would i think about things like what the, what breaks a man's soul you know mm-hmm. what are those things and and to turn those things into a blessing is a very powerful strength i spoke with one of our instructors recently who had lost a child and i said I don't know what gets you out of bed every morning. I, uh, you know, I don't know what that feels like, nor do I ever want to know what it feels like. I don't know. The only thing I think I you I come up with is that you may be able to help somebody going through the same thing. Your experience and your survival from that experience, which was out of your control, may help somebody else heal and feel better. Um, that's yeah. what I believe. I think you're right. And I think it's almost each one teach one. I learn every day. I don't claim to know everything about my own subject. It's, I think, impossible. I have to learn and keep up with this every day. But you're right, especially in the peer context in law enforcement. Um, you know, being able to be there for somebody, it's unbelievable. If, if, if you looked at the calls that come in or just what you just shared, which is an absolute tragedy, right? Um. Being able to be there for somebody, whether it's a, the death of one of their children or a family member or they're going through divorce, being there for them, even off duty, it, people, I don't think, realize the totality of how significant that is. As, you know, I mean, we all deal with things in our personal lives. The traumatic events on the job just further compounds the trauma that we experience in our personal lives because we all have experienced trauma at one point in, in our life and, and being able to recognize changes in our behavior and our thinking. If you catch that early on, boy, I'll tell you, it, it'll avoid a lot of future pain. We sometimes are our own worst enemies. High risk behavior is a huge, huge thing that people start to experience with untreated trauma. And you, you, you see it a lot in cops. I mean, you just do. Uh, you, you, you scratch your head at the end of the day, wondering like, I know this person. Why would they do commit this crime? Why? This is not who I know. It's not. And I've experienced this being someone like it was all my fault being chemically dependent because I used, I chose to numb out. Uh, if I had a different strategy, I hopefully, if I look back, hopefully I would have been able to say, okay, this is what they were talking about. There's major, this is not who I am. I have my whole family telling me like, what's wrong with you? You're not who you used to be. At that point, there should have been a plan in place. Kick that into high gear so that I wouldn't have lost everything. I lost what do you think of the apprehension was that you didn't want to hear anybody? You think you're just so chemically dependent at that point or what, what it, was going through your head? It, it started before I became chemically dependent. When people are talking about, you know, me being an asshole, irritable, not always just checked out reading on my phone. I never had social media at the time. So I was how just, think, how, how do you think you connect to somebody like that? What do you do when you see somebody? Well, like that? well so, well, now, I mean, you, you, I think personally, the person has to really want it. Right. I think, I think the person really needs to want help, but I think by this conversation that we're having is one of, I hope many, because this is just like a 
a foundational thing, right? I think that there are ways of communicating with people to get them to realize what kind of changes are actually occurring in a way that is not judgmental or causing them to avoid what you're trying to do to help them. Avoidance is another huge thing that happens with post-traumatic stress or untreated trauma. We avoid everything that brings us pain. And so when someone's just sitting there yapping at you and telling you you're an asshole, you're changed, you're this or that, you don't no empathy. Do that at it's all. Judge, it's just judgment. There's no empathy. Just judgment, right? And then what else do you fear? The judgment of your colleagues at work, your peers. And administration, right? Yeah. Administration, absolutely. You say one wrong thing, especially in certain departments, like I'm stressed or that. that oh, really, yeah. You know, and then what happens? We look at the fitness for duty issues, right? Dude, they did it to a guy. We, I think I told you this. I don't know if I told Jenna this, but- we had a guy who had an off-duty incident with some with some girl at the agency. And I'm not talking about like just some stupid sexual shit. And went up, put him in internal affairs. And I don't know how the whole thing stemmed out, but he said, this whole thing's got me stressed out. Dude, they couldn't get his gun out of his holster fast enough and into a fucking safe. And off to the hospital three days after that on a, on a remark that wasn't true. The guy that wasn't going to, I knew the guy. He was not, he was stressed out because he was stressed out. You know, the guy was a married guy. His wife found out about it. He wasn't going to go suck start his pistol. And that's not the appropriate action. But they didn't give a fuck, dude. Because it's one, there was no training. There was no compassion. Nobody cared. And 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 the person who you're telling to, it's just, it's just so inappropriate all the time. And, you know, just like anything else, I'm like, where do we start? You start where you start, right? Uh, the, of a, the, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single footstep. So here, we're starting. And hopefully other people meet us at the crossroads who are starting in other forums addressing the same thing. Uh, the world is fucked up. I mean, yeah. there's no question about it. And I always tell people, if you think the world is fucked up, police work is 10 times more fucked up in the world. So a lot of things you've got to get grounded on and understand about this job when you get into it, while you're in it, and who you are in it. And a lot of that, Good things come out of compassion. And I know people say to me all the time, oh, you should have my chief here. You should have my captain here. My sergeant should hear this. They're not coming. They don't want to hear it. We're not, we can't reach out to them. And dude, we get the messages. And I get direct messages. I needed to hear that. I'm that guy. I'm sorry that I've acted that way. Listen, that's fine. And and Dennis, you're, 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 you're so spot on about this. And unfortunately, many law enforcement leaders don't recognize or realize that actually like, Making something a wellness issue, if it doesn't have to be a disciplinary issue, and actually like realizing that these are human beings and not robots, it would cost, it would save them so much with workers' comp claims, uh, absenteeism, right? You know, lawsuits, civilian complaints, embarrassment, exactly. Criminal act, like, hey, how about this guy? Guy, guy's not getting the right help, uh, gets DWI, hits a tree. You know, I had, a, I had a guy write to me one time and he said, this is no bullshit. He goes, I could understand you not giving another cop a ticket, but you think I'm letting another cop go on DWI? He goes, that's what you suggested. And I said, my suggestion is to find out what put him in that spot to begin with. Absolutely. You know, and by the way, not only him, but everybody else. We should be treating everybody who's a victim or even a criminal, uh, you know, to a degree with some compassion of why is this person finding themselves here and, and humanize it. You're going to see how far that goes for you as a human and as a police officer. Absolutely. And you know what, how this manifests 
and or is perceived by and large uh, by an officer who's experiencing what we're discussing. It's it, it comes in the in terms of or it's perceived as organizational betrayal. OK, organizational betrayal, whether it's real or perceived. Adds so much stress and compounds the symptoms of post-traumatic stress or untreated trauma. When, and and when, at the trauma retreat I went to, there was a list of critical incidents or significant things that affect cops, line of duty injuries, you know, suicide or death of a coworker, prolonged exposure to a, a, a known victim, uh, mass casualty incident. Organizational betrayal is on that list, mm-hmm. whether it's real or perceived. And I think you know, we're, we're doing a disservice to our cops when leadership across the country doesn't embrace a culture of wellness or prioritize mental health, leaving cops basically having to suffer in silence. Because if they step forward, they're going to lose their, their gun. They're going to be part of the, you know, the rubber gun squad. And that's what the fear is. So I think the expectations, hopefully over time and in our culture will change. And street cop is adding to that value. It's adding to the narrative in, a, in an industry that I believe desperately needs change. Um, and you know what? I always have this thing in my mind, thousand th- thoughts a day, is if you're showing up, we're showing up. Right? As long as you keep going to work as cops, people go, oh, how could you tell these guys to blah, blah, blah? I go, they're showing up to work. They need us to give them advice, to coach them on, and to remind them of why they took this job. Absolutely. I'm going to, I'm going to close this out with one thing, but before I do that, and I, I'm going to ask you if you know this portion, but before I do that, Nick, tell us about your class a little bit. Give me the one minute version of what they can expect and how we're rolling it out and what they, you know, what, who's it for? The class, the class is for any law enforcement officer. Uh, and by the way, the first class is going to be in Pittsburgh and the next one will be in Indiana. It'll be uh, September 21st. And then 2021. So we're recording this as of the 12th of July. Yeah. So it's coming, it's coming up. And in the class, it's going to be a collection of all the things that we've discussed, but a lot more. And it's going to be, it's not being taught by a clinician or an attorney. It's being taught by, you know, a, a someone who's been there and every day has to work on his own healing in order to, you know, um, to, to continue functioning. Functioning. I want to I want to throw this out too. Like, if you guys want to come with anonymity and want it, we don't have to let your agency know. You can come oh, yeah. and you can do. You know, if you feel like you want to come and you want to keep it quiet, you can send. Do you have an email with us yet? Yes, Nick at streetcop.com. Oh, you get that one because we used to have a guy Nick who worked here, so you got that one. You got you took up the old one. What's your other personal email? Just in case that one fails. Nick at theresiliencyproject.info. Okay. So that's the other one. So, you know, this is going to be an environment where there's no judgment. And if you are feeling like, you know, you are coming to heal, this will be the place to to come. And it's it's a comfortable environment. You're not going to be judged by your peers. We won't tolerate it. No, absolutely not. And that's, there's a tone that I set in the class early on. And I, I really encourage people to open up so that their peers in the class can see that they're not alone in the experiences that they've had. And this is going to, you know, we talk about hypervigilance. We talk about the biology of, of stress, talk about, you know, cortisol levels and all the different things that affect us, burnout. But we also discuss, and I talk about 
how to implement certain tactics to save your life and to not go down a path that's going to be self-destructive. This is actually, I, I think, going to be a class that people are going to actually like going to. And uh, it's just going to take people to overcome the stigma of a class like this, because it's not like we would say a sexy class, like undercover tactics or, um, you know, stuff like that. But I can say this about the class. If you know what you're going to take away life changing tactics that have everything to do with staying alive in whatever assignment that you have, being a former SWAT guy and a, a narcotic detective, I've had amazing experiences and I talk about the experiences in the class and connect on those levels and use those examples in my career. And sometimes in the students who attend the class, if they feel comfortable, I never ask anyone to speak. It's all voluntary. I like to get them talking though. And we start jamming and rolling and it ends up being a fun class. We talk about a lot of different things, especially in what's going on in society today and that, you know, how to overcome the anti-police rhetoric and the things that we're unfortunately seeing around the country. And I'm just grateful to you for bringing me on, for making this a priority and for people like Jeff Smith, Tom Rizzo, and all those in the street cop family who are incredible instructors who have been just very open and helped me so much along my process with you guys. So thank you for making this a priority. That's emblematic of your leadership and the rest of, of the street cop training group. Some of the things I'm most proud of here is the people that work here. Yeah, and I mean okay. that from the instructors here who behave appropriately mm. to our internal staff here who behave appropriately and are good to everybody. Absolutely. All right. So I'm going to end it with this thing. Have you ever read the book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? No. Really good book to read. Uh, it's on that business list when you're a new businessman. But there was one thing that I used to talk about in my class. It was a excerpt out of the book and has to do with a paradigm shift in the author's life. It's a real story. And I talked about it in class and I talked about non-judgment. And we essentially used somebody who maybe voluntarily went at a early teenage life to go be sex trafficked and, and judgment around that. What are, you know, to sit here and say, this person was problematic. They wanted to go. We don't know the other side of it. You don't know the other side of maybe it was a better option for that person. Maybe every morning that person woke up and was beat to death or within inches of their life by their parent or burned or raped or molested. So for us to cast judgment on anybody going through anything, uh, you would feel pretty goddamn awful if you saw somebody misbehaving and found out they were dying in three weeks. So think about things like that. And I think this sums it up. And we're going to end on this. I'm going to read it. And you can convey a message after it if you'd like or make a comment. But I'm going to read it to everybody here. Pull it up on my phone. So it's the seven habits of highly effective people, Stephen Covey. And here's how it goes. I remember a mini paradigm shift I experienced one Sunday morning on a subway in New York. People were sitting quietly, some reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm, peaceful scene. Then suddenly a man and his children entered into the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing. And yet the man sitting next to me did nothing. 
It was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, take no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else in the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what I felt was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. The man lifted his gaze as to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and said softly, oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Can you imagine what I felt like at that moment? My paradigm shifted. Suddenly, I saw things differently. I felt differently. I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. Did not have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with the man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife just died? I'm sorry. Can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed in an instant. Debriefing the story says how we quickly we judge others, how quickly we make up our minds about a person. Because of this, we cannot know the real truth. But when we hear someone's real story, the truth behind who they are and where they've come from and what they've experienced, we can understand and appreciate them better. Therefore, let us create a paradigm shift of listening to others before judging them. It's powerful stuff. It's absolutely beautiful. I'm going to definitely have to get that and I agree. It's a great podcast episode. We'll do this again soon. Thank you, Dennis. I'm very grateful. Bye, Nick.